0: Making food from CO2 on Mars? You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Carbon dioxide is generally a bad thing when it comes to space travel. But what if you could harness it for good? One company is planning to do just that and is taking technology developed here on Earth to transform CO2 into things like hand sanitizer and jet fuel and turn it into food for Mars-bound astronauts. We'll hear from Air Company about the technology and its application for the Red Planet. Then, veteran astronaut Terry Virts is out with a new book, answering all sorts of questions about space travel like can you play video games from orbit? We'll talk with Verts about his new book, The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on 90.7 WMFE News. Carbon dioxide is generally a bad thing when it comes to space travel, but there are efforts to recycle it. On the International Space Station, scrubbers remove it from the orbiting lab to make the air breathable for astronauts. On Mars, an experiment is turning the atmospheric CO2 into oxygen. And here on Earth, one company hopes to turn that Martian CO2 into food. Here to talk more about the process is the co-founder and CTO of Air Company, Stafford Sheehan. He begins our conversation explaining the process.
1: In, in a nutshell, the way we do it is we try to mimic what plants do. Um, you know, so plants do photosynthesis, right? They take carbon dioxide and water, uh, and they breathe out oxygen and they make, uh, a, a biological product like glucose or, uh, you know, like cellulose. Um, so we take in carbon dioxide and water and we output oxygen as well as our only emission and we make uh, a usable product. So the, the way that we do that, um, you know, is, is mimicking photosynthesis because we know that photosynthesis is compatible with, uh, you know, Earth's geochemistry and all of the, the things that have happened in the last handful of, uh, you know, handful of decades slash, slash centuries. Um, with fossil fuels and the pollution that's happening with fossil fuels is really just taking the byproducts of old photosynthesis and putting them back in the atmosphere. So we're just trying to reverse that process.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like such a great idea. Mimic what plants do to get rid of all of this carbon. Why has it taken us as humans so long to get to this point? Is 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 the technology complex? Is what are what are some of the um, the challenges? In, in making this happen
1: yeah the, the technology is complex um, that's that's one of the big one of the big challenges is that um, in order to in order to do this in a man-made system you have to put in a lot of energy uh, and making the technology energy efficient has been a huge challenge um, and making the prop the, the process selective uh, that's one thing that nature actually did very well that until recently we haven't been able to do quite as well is selectively produce uh, you know only the product that you want without too many byproducts
0: and and how did you go about designing and, and and developing this technology I mean how long did it take you to get to this point where you're actually able to offer up usable products from this like you know alcohol or or jet fuel uh, <laughs> as, as, as you your company is doing now
1: so I I did my PhD in catalysis um and that's one of the what is that so that's, <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, so a catalyst is something that you add to a chemical reaction to make it happen uh, or to make it happen faster or to make it happen more selectively um, and in uh, I mean there, there in, in a lot of ways they're they're all around us there's catalysts in the plants that are you know catalysts sitting in the leaves of plants that help to catalyze the conversion of water into oxygen for example so without catalysts we wouldn't have any oxygen uh you know in the atmosphere and that's pretty important to us um so um catalysts are typically in the in kind of uh in the the chemical industry the petrochemical industry they contain different metals and those those metals uh take reactant molecules and are able to rearrange their atoms on the surface of the catalyst to make the desired product and that wouldn't happen uh, in the same way without the catalyst. So, I mean, the technical definition of a catalyst is something that increases the rate or selectivity of a chemical reaction. But um, in in reality, a lot of these chemical reactions wouldn't happen at a rate that is perceptible to us without a specific catalyst. Um, like, for example, if you just take water and carbon dioxide and, and, and sunlight and you just you have them in the atmosphere you you can't really convert them into you know into the products that photosynthesis gives you um whereas in a in a leaf there are several different catalysts that facilitate both the transformation of carbon dioxide into biological intermediates and facilitate the transformation of you know water into oxygen um and those are all kind of the things that help us that uh, you know help us just exist uh, and you know help, help the chemistry that makes the world go around and go forward but um you know in the chemical industry these catalysts are are really crucial to being able to perform the selected transformations or the chemical transformations that you need to uh, to achieve whatever your goal is
0: so so just by by applying these these chemical catalysts you can you can alter the way that photosynthesis actually happens and get the byproduct that you want at the end of it am i understanding this correctly
1: or you can create a whole new reaction that does the same fundamental thing as photo as photosynthesis huh except at a at a much faster rate um you know because the problem that we have right now the reason why climate change is such a big issue is because trees and you know natural photosynthesis can't pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at the same rate that we're putting it into the atmosphere right we can burn fossil fuels faster than trees can breathe it back in so it's it's really a problem of the rates. Um, if you can make a man-made system that can pull that carbon dioxide back in and convert it into products or sequester it, uh, you know, in certain you know products that have a long-lived carbon life, or replace the products that we currently get from fossil fuels, um, then you could potentially solve the problem. So that's what we're. That's kind of what our aim is. So our 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 trees actually look like a lot of steel. Um, you know, our our trees actually look like Almost a you know an oil refinery because we use a lot of the same infrastructure and a lot of the same you know pieces of equipment. But rather than taking fossil fuels and combusting and putting carbon dioxide into the air, um, our our chemical refinery equipment takes the carbon dioxide, combines it with water, and produces products uh, that you know that will displace fossil fuel products or have a long life uh, here on Earth.
0: Obviously, this has Um, as you've been explaining, you know, uh, great resource for us here on Earth, but your company is looking beyond this planet um, with the uh, NASA's Deep Space Food Challenge. Tell me a bit about how you're helping NASA out and, and how this technology and this process might be used to help support humans living off of this planet.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, there's, there are a lot of different ways that carbon dioxide conversion comes into play when you're talking about outer space. Um, and actually, there's already been a carbon dioxide utilization system on the International Space Station. Uh, so there's already a really good example of that actually working. Um, so there's two major applications. First is the atmosphere of other planets, particularly Mars. Um, you know, Mars is 95% carbon dioxide, its atmosphere. So if you can use the resources that are there on Mars to create things, it's much more energy and cost effective than having to fly them out from Earth. So that's, that's one example. And another one, the example that's actually been already used is um, uh, on, on space stations, astronauts breathe out carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide has to be scrubbed from the air because too much carbon dioxide can be toxic uh to humans then you you need to do something with that carbon dioxide in a in a in a very mass constricted space like a space station um and so they actually deployed a carbon dioxide utilization reactor that uh harvested co2 and produced methane and water um, on the international space station for a number of years so there's already a good legacy of using carbon dioxide uh conversion systems for space applications
0: and and how could your process be used for these space applications? I mean, is it is it similar to what NASA is using on the International Space Station? Or are you thinking a little bit differently about how to how to utilize the the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of, say, Mars?
1: It's similar in some ways to the way that uh, that it was utilized on the carbon dioxide we've utilized on the International Space Station. Um, however, we don't make methane. That was the product that they were making. We make different products. So at air company here we're, we're a power to liquids company so that means you know methane is a gas right so they were making a gaseous product out of the carbon dioxide uh that you know astronauts were breathing out um they were also making water as a byproduct and harvesting that um however when you're making a liquid product there's a lot of other things you can do um so we produce you know one of the major you know cornerstones of our technology is our ability to produce alcohol from carbon dioxide that's where our consumer products come from so we uh, we can take that carbon dioxide and convert it into alcohols that can then be used as a feedstock for biomanufacturing um so we we did that uh, actually um and uh, we uh we won nasa's carbon dioxide conversion competition um a couple years ago with uh, with that technology so this is our safe foray into NASA's Centennial Challenges with Deep Space Food. Um, With Deep Space Food, we're just taking the alcohols that come out of our reactor and we're feeding them to yeast. And so very much like how you can take sugars, feed them to yeast, and make something like beer, you can also take alcohol and feed it to different types of yeast and go the other way, Uh, make more yeast, make uh, things like single-cell proteins. So that's what we did for the Deep Space Food. Uh, competition so we we already demonstrated um you know one technology for nasa in the co2 conversion challenge and um here in the deep space food competition we're, we're demonstrating a second technology um and this is all kind of this all kind of comes from our ability to create clean enough liquids out of our reactor or you know out of our reactor with a relatively you know low impact purification step after uh clean enough liquids to drink um you know i mean we we have uh, we have a, a vodka product in in market that that you can go try at a lot of uh, bars and restaurants in manhattan um and you know that was made with the same process
0: how how viable would this be if if nasa says to you you know hey we're we're putting humans on mars in in the next 10 or 15 years staff we want to put one of these machines uh on the surface for them i mean is that possible
1: yeah it's absolutely possible um, and if you look at technologies, uh, especially renewable technologies, bringing them to fruition in outer space has actually been a way to adopt them more broadly here on Earth. Um, solar panels are my favorite example. You know, 50 years ago, you could really only afford to put a solar panel on a, on a space station because you had to use a, you had to, to, to use a ton of money to, to build your, your solar panel. They weren't, you know, manufactured broadly but with that as an early commercialization opportunity that gave the technology the, the, the ability to come down the cost curves um, by having an outlet. And it, I see it's actually similar with, with carbon dioxide utilization technology. We can, we can commercialize it in these high value applications for outer space, and that helps us come down the cost curve. Today you see solar panels on you know, rooftops all over the country and carbon dioxide conversion technology like ours um, is something that we could, you know, we can see in the future being just as widespread.
0: Mm-hmm. We've been speaking with Stafford Sheehan. He is the co-founder and CTO of the carbon Two jet fuel company, Air Company, and also a finalist in NASA's Deep Space Food Challenge. Staff, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: The winners of NASA's Deep Space Food Challenge will be announced on May 19th. Still to come, a conversation with former astronaut Terry Virts about playing video games in space, sleeping in weightlessness, and all those other burning questions about space travel. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. What's it like to sleep in space? And can you play Fortnite from orbit? These are burning questions posed to former astronaut Terry Virts and serves as a foundation for his new book, The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. The book is geared towards a younger audience, although I thoroughly enjoyed it, and is a follow-up to a collection of essays Verts wrote geared towards older adult readers titled How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Terry Verts joins us now to talk about the book and motivations to write something for a younger audience.
2: Well, when I was a young kid, the first book I remember was uh, one of those board books with one line per page, and it was about Apollo and the moon missions. Um, and so I was hooked. I grew up with posters of rockets. I always tell the story. And I even had a space shuttle and F-16 poster on my wall as a boy. So reading is kind of what got me interested in being an astronaut. And then when I was 13, a family friend uh, told me to read a book called The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, which is a spectacular book. It's a great movie too, by the way. It's aged very well. And um, that showed me the path of how to actually be an astronaut, i.e. fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut. So reading is always important for me. I think it's super important for any kid It's in their education. It's important for adults just to stay connected with ideas in the world. So, um, I really wanted to do that for kids to hopefully inspire kids, not only be astronauts, but just to read, um, maybe if they like science or engineering or aviation or whatever. Um, so my own experience of being uh, inspired from books is, is why I wanted to do this. But
0: in this book, there's, there's quite a bit of questions that, that a kid would have, um, and probably questions that, um, would never be covered in the right <laughs> stuff or, or right. even some of the books that, that you were reading, like, can you play video games in space? Right. Uh, where, where did, where did these questions come from?
2: Well, that's interesting. You phrase it that way. Cause originally this book was ask an astronaut a hundred questions. So I took a hundred questions. I actually asked kids, I'm like, Hey, some of my friends were eight or 10 year olds or whatever. And so they gave me some questions. And so the original book was actually, you know, a couple of paragraphs answers to a hundred different questions. And the publisher wanted to, we decided to make it a narrative story, right. From training all the way through the mission. Um, but, um, my first book, how to ask, well, not my first book, my last book, how to astronaut is a collection of 51 short essays, for adults, it's uh, stuff you'd expect, stuff you wouldn't expect. Um, hopefully, it makes you laugh and say, "Wow!" Uh, not really. It's not a book for space nerds. It's a book for anybody. But I like that. I like that style of answering things that you might not expect, like, "Can you play video games in space?" I actually, a kid, a lot of kids have asked me that question, so that's where that came from. Uh, but I think it's important to bring the human side of space flight. And not just kind of the history lesson side of spaceflight for kids and for adults.
0: Well, what's the answer without without us getting the book? Uh, can can you play video games from, face, from space?
2: So you can, sort of. You don't have a very good internet connection, um, but sometimes you have one. So you could play a game that didn't require you know giggle bits of uh, connection, internet connectivity. I never had time. I used my spare time to take pictures. I helped make an IMAX movie called A Beautiful Planet, and that was my uh, spare time. Some people read, some astronauts bring musical instruments, you know, they play the guitar or the flute or whatever. Um, but for me, it was taking pictures. But I guess if you were really into games, and maybe some of the younger astronauts, you know, there's some gen or there's some millennial astronauts now, so maybe they're into video games more. Mm-hmm. I was in the, I loved playing video games when I was a kid, but mm-hmm. um, ever, once I got in the Air Force, I never, I didn't have a lot of time. I was always busy with work or with my own kids. So, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: You, you, you talk in, in this book, and, and you've talked about it in, in your other books too. And it's always one of the, the main reasons I like speaking with you is, is because y- you, you describe the view so beautifully. Um, and, and in this book, you, you talk about, you talk about shooting that IMAX film, but you also talk about, you know, seeing the auroras from space. I <laughs> mean, just, just tell us what it is like to see all of these different things at a vantage point that only a few hundred people have ever gotten the chance to see.
2: Right. I try as hard as I can to describe it. The best way to do that is to watch A Beautiful Planet on an IMAX screen. Uh, if you can't do that, you can stream it. I, I did a photography book with National Geographic called View From Above. Um, so there's pictures and there's videos out there, But th- and I do speaking where I where I show some videos of this. To see the aurora, um, for me, the northern lights, first of all, were shocking. I've never seen them from Earth, and to see them from space is spectacular. They always look like a ghost, because this thing would kind of just show up. And with your eyes, our eyes are designed to work in black and white at night and color during the day. But you can still perceive some color. You can still see the green with your eye. Uh, The camera makes it look much greener than what your eyes actually perceive. uh, But you can still see that color. And it, it to me it was like a, a ghost and also a flowing river because um, as these particles come from the sun, they get trapped in our magnetic field and funneled down through our atmosphere, it causes this green glow of plasma and, and also pink. And it moves in real time. So as you're looking at it, it's like a it's like a flowing stream or this flowing river of alien plasma. It's it's <laughs> it's insane. And the southern lights that you see in the summertime, so May-June time frame. That's when it's dark in the south. The southern magnetic pole is actually a lot closer to our orbit than the northern magnetic pole. So where these solar radiation particles hit the atmosphere is actually where we fly, where the space station flies. And one night, I remember flying through this thing, and I just stopped. I turned off all the lights, and I just floated there as we flew through this huge green and pink cloud that went up hundreds of miles above earth um it was it reminded me of being in a star trek movie when they fly through the nebula you know minus the klingons Mm -hmm. waiting for us on the other side it was (laughs) a you know it was a it was it's just spectacular of all the things that i've seen and there's a million spectacular indescribable things the aurora they're either at the top or they're on the mount rushmore of the most amazing things that i saw in space
0: yeah, you don't need video games when you have that view, right? <laughs> I,
2: no, I don't want to go play Solitaire on my iPad when I can go down to the cupola and look out the window. Exactly.
0: One thing I noticed in this book, Terry, and and um, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, but I, I found it interesting that it was in, in this book, was you talked about um, the risks of space flight and some of the tragedies that have happened. Um, why did you feel that that was important to include in in, in this book for for young readers?
2: I did because, um, you know, kids are a lot smarter than we think and they understand things and they ask the questions. They wonder, like, is it dangerous? I get asked this all the time. This is something that kids want to talk about. Um, I mean, God, given the news that we have in America with shooting, every kid now that's reading this book knows that they need to run and then hide and then fight. And, you know, they've learned things they should not have learned at a young age. And so um, the risks of spaceflight is something that, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or 14 or six, whoever, this is I think a pretty wide range, age range book. Whoever's reading it is certainly able to, to understand that there's been a couple of accidents in space flight. Uh,
0: this 35-year-old enjoyed the book, so um, it's definitely a, a, a wide <laughs> wide range of, of people. Um, a, a few other things in here, Terry, that, that I found really interesting that I, that I want to bring up is, and I've also talked to other astronauts about this, is sleeping in space. Um yeah. I have I have heard from from astronauts that it's kind of the best sleep they've ever had uh is when they're in space. Yeah. Uh tell tell me a bit about cause you got to sleep in in kind of some some different arrangements on on your different missions. What was it like right. actually getting some shut eye <laughs> in orbit?
2: My right. My first flight was on a space shuttle and I was worried because I was a rookie. I didn't know if I'd be able to sleep in weightlessness or not. And it was crammed. There were six of us on the mid deck, which is I don't know, it's like the size of the bathroom in your house or maybe like the master bathroom. No, it's not even that big. Anyway, it's not a lot of space. So you'd have to pick, uh, the wall or a ceiling or something and clip yourself in the sleeping bag. And I I was so exhausted. I just, I didn't need sleeping pills. I just was out. I, you know, I was like ready for bed. As soon as I closed my eyes, I was asleep. And then the alarm, like I needed an alarm to wake up. I didn't wake up on my own. On the space station flight, you have your own um, crew quarters, which is about the size of a phone booth. And that was even better because I, I didn't clip my sleeping bag to the wall. I just floated. Um, and just sleeping in space was amazing. I could talk about this forever. I've, one of the things I would do at night, I took, I'm took i wearing headsets right now. So I take my, my headsets, plug it into my laptop, um, and I listened to the Interstellar soundtrack for about a month, which was awesome. Uh, and then the Russians set up some sounds from earth or psychologists sent us like rain waves at the beach, uh, jungle sounds with birds chirping, a crowded cafe, and everybody fell in love with those sounds. Um, so I went to bed for about a month listening to rain, which is great. You know, rain on earth is great to fall asleep to just soft, you know, not a thunderstorm, but soft rain. Um, in that month that I was listening to rain, I actually dreamt of earth and, the whole rest of the time I was in space, I never either I just had dreams of just blackness or floating with asteroids or it was always dark, black space. Um, but when I was listening to rain, my brain somehow those neuron, the earth neurons were firing and I was dreaming of like earth nature, which is pretty cool.
0: Finally, Terry, you know, this book, this book is geared towards towards younger readers um, these younger readers are going to have a far greater chance at going to space than than people of of your age I and did. even yeah. people of my age. Yeah. yeah. Um you know what what is the outlook from from your perspective uh for for the future of of this generation living and working in space.
2: So I think um well first of all it's interesting to say this book is for young kids. I think it is, but it's the same questions that adults have. It's just the editors helped me get the language down for the right age and it's illustrated, but it really answers this similar questions to what I did and how to astronaut. Um, but I think there were, there are more different types of missions. Like you just talked about the ax 2 private space mission, which is kind of funny because people would always say, Terry, when are normal people going to get to go to space? And now it's like, oh, okay, normal people can go to space. The kind of normal people that can write a check for $55 million finally can get to go to space. Whereas obviously the really abnormal weird people like you who grew up in middle-class America and, you know, had a government job for 30 years, normal people hadn't gone to space. So I always laugh at that.
0: And do you get offended that people think that you're not normal? Well, I'm (laughs) not actually, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not
2: normal. So I I have no illusions that I am normal, but you know what I'm saying? It's not like, yes. Yeah. Like (laughs) now that billionaires can go finally us normal people can go to space. And so, um, or so there's really a couple different things that are happening now. It's not even the future; it's now. But those the quote unquote affordable flights that maybe six figures, maybe low seven figures, um, are still expensive. And those are just you just get a few minutes in space. If you want to get to orbit, it's going to be an eight-figure ticket, I think, for the foreseeable future.
0: We've been speaking with Terry Verts. He's a veteran of more than two hundred. Days in Space and author of multiple books, including The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet and How to Astronaut. Terry, thanks again for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun.
0: And we did speak to Verts about his earlier book, How to Astronaut, back in 2020. I'll post a link to that conversation on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News with editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.